Welcome to Classic Paranormal, where we bring you true stories of the weird, strange, and otherworldly from works of literature from the past that time forgot. Don't forget to hit the share button to help promote this podcast. In this inaugural series of episodes, you'll be entertained by Hamlin Garland's 40 Years of Psychic Research, first published in 1936. Preface In this volume, I have brought together in chronological order all of the outstanding experiments which I conducted as an investigator of spiritualistic phenomena. Much of this material is drawn from official reports, letters, and addresses, but has been rewritten for the first time into a plain narrative of fact. It is as exact as my dated records, supplemented by my memory, can make it. The names of psychics are mainly fictional. As a man of 75, it seemed advisable that this chronicle should be put into definite form while yet I am able to revise and proofread it. The method is substantially the same as that which I employed in afternoon neighbors and companions on the trail. It is my psychic logbook, as roadside meetings and its companions form my literary logbook. All phenomena described in these pages are presented as something I saw, heard, felt, and weighed, and are given for the most part without regard to any prejudice. If these supernormal events are illusory, then all the events of my life are illusory. They happened, and I recorded them. I leave the reader to draw his own conclusions concerning their significance. Chapter 1. On Special Detail in 1891, I was an aspiring young writer with an attic study in Boston, a novelist holding a keen interest in positive science. As a student of Herbert Spencer, I counted myself an agnostic and an evolutionist, but among my most loyal friends at this time was B.O. Flower, a mystic and an editor of The Arena, the leading radical magazine of that day. As a young man of about my own age, that is to say 31, Flower was my generous advocate. He had already published a number of my articles and stories, a fact which indicates his belief in me as a fictionist at least. That he was a spiritualist I well knew, but we had never argued the matter. Like myself, he was a student of Darwin and had a special regard for Alfred Russell Wallace, who though one of the leading evolutionists had written in support of the spiritualistic hypothesis. One day as we were chatting in his office, Flower said to me, a group of us are going to organize an American psychic society with central office here in Boston. Nominally, there's an American branch of the English society, but actually the organization consists of one man, Hodgson, the resident secretary who does very little but draws salary. We are determined on an organization which will do something in the way of experimental research. We want you to come in as one of our directors. Surprised and somewhat amused by this request, I protested that I didn't know a thing about such matters and that my mind ran toward the positive sciences. That's just why we want you, replied Flower. You're young, logical in your thought and a close observer. Furthermore, you're not bereaved as so many people are who go into this work. You're not a mourner. You can approach an experiment with unprejudiced mind. We need a youth of your positive character. I'm also asking Professor Dolbear of Tufts College to serve with us. He's a physicist and an inventor and the author of a book on matter and motion. He and you will offset Minute J. Savage and Allen, who are already committed to the spirit side of the question as I am. Rabbi Schindler, who is inclined to the negative side, has also consented to act and we shall have, I hope, one or two other men of science. Our secretary, Ernest Allen, will edit the journal which we intend to publish. Up to this time, I'd given very little thought to the dark side of the moon, although in my youth I had listened to stories told by my father in which he described my mother as a young girl acting the part of a medium. In his report, my grandfather's house in southern Wisconsin during the early 50s had been the stage of a series of singular dramas, in which my mother, a girl of 10 or 12, and her brother Franklin, a child of 5, had been chief actors. Settlers came from all parts of the country to hear mysterious raps and see tables move without apparent cause. 
Chairs would follow Isabel up the stairs, and Frank, a little shaver who couldn't read or spell a word, wrote on slates long messages full of cuss words and obscene threats. It was this development in Frank's case which led your father, McClintock, to stop it all. It's the work of the devil, he declared. In confirmation of all this, one of my aunts, a gentle, lovely character, said, Yes, these forces made my life a hell for two years. With these stories in mind and with a natural curiosity as to the facts I said to Flower, I will come on the board of directors if Dolbear does. I know something of his work as a professor of physics, and if he is disposed to investigate, I'll follow along with him. Pleasantly excited by the vista which this connection opened out before me, I was careful to stipulate that my duties on the committee should not interfere with my work as a writer. Quote, I will give my afternoons and evenings to investigations, but my mornings must not be disturbed. End quote. To this, Flower agreed, and a few days later I met the directors and was introduced to them. The president of the society, Minute J. Savage, was a scholarly and highly respected Unitarian clergyman whom I had often heard speak and whom I greatly admired. Rabbi Solomon Schindler, another skeptical member of the board, was one of the best-known Jewish speakers in Massachusetts, a sturdy scholarly man of German birth. The Reverend Ernest Allen, who acted as secretary, was a blonde, smiling, curly-haired man of about my own age. Although fairly committed to the spirit hypothesis, he remained, as I soon discovered, a very keen investigator. He had an orderly mind and was given to making numbered precise statements of his theories. Amos Emerson Dolbear, professor of physics at Tufts College, was a typical Yankee, thin, keen-eyed, quick-spoken, and dryly humorous. In physique and the cut of his beard, he suggested Uncle Sam. He confessed that his experience with metaphysical phenomena had been slight, but that he was willing to give a certain amount of time to investigation. In my presence, Flower smilingly said to Dolbear, We're depending on you and Garland and Rabbi Schindler to counteract the credulity of Dr. Savage, Allen, and myself. Dolbear's eyes twinkled as he replied, I shall approach the doings of spooks as I would investigate any other alleged happenings in the physical universe. I'll serve the society to the best of my ability. This remark led Dr. Savage to name Dolbear and me as a special committee on physical phenomena, and in preparation for my duties I spent several days at the library going over the records of the English society. I was surprised to find many concise and unbiased reports on scientific experiments with old-world mediums. Up to this time, I had read only a few copies of badly printed spiritualistic weeklies whose editors were in effect paid advocates. Their articles bored me. They smelled of darkened back parlors, and their extended comment often took the form of prolix essays in which spiritualism was a divine revelation, an assault on traditional Christianity. In short, spirit converse in America seemed to be still in the stage which had aroused Emerson's disgust and Hawthorne's grave doubt. Whatever the facts about mediumship, it is unfortunate in its historians, I remarked to Flower when I saw him next. I find that many of its advocates are savage critics of the established order. American authors, for the most part, keep clear of it. Howes touched upon it adversely in his undiscovered country, and Henry James has dealt with some of the dubious practices of mediumship, but their approach has been thus far entirely fictional rather than scientific. It is not a question of a medium's social standing, replied Flower. It is a question of fact. Observation is not enough. Read Alfred Russell Wallace and William Crookes. Their approach to the subject was purely scientific. Opportunities for experiment offered almost immediately. The Boston papers having announced the formation of our society, letters began coming to our secretary, each presenting a psychic mystery and requiring aid in its solution. Many of the letters were written badly on cheap stationery, but they all gave evidence of sincerity and a genuine desire for help. One report which I recall rather clearly especially interested Dolbear. It came from Virginia and described a haunted well in which, as one peered down it, one could see faces on the water, faces not accounted for at the curb. This was so amply authenticated that Dolbear agreed to go down and look into it. 
Several other agitated citizens wrote of strange happenings in their homes, noises, shifting furniture and the like, and asked my committee to come and investigate. You'll see tables rock and chairs slide without discoverable cause, they declared. In brief, I became aware almost in a day of an amazing world of hidden outlaw forces, a world in which miracles were everyday occurrences. On reading these letters, it seemed possible for me to step at once into this region of the unaccountable. It was at my door, or just across the street. While Dolbear went to Virginia to inspect the magic well, Alan, our secretary, and I took train to a nearby city with intent to examine a young girl in whose presence it was reported tables heaved and chairs squeaked as if some invisible person were seated there. As this was a typical case, I shall describe it in some detail. The family was intelligent and industrious. Its members were laborers in nearby shops. The father, a man of middle age, was notably pious. The home was plain, the furniture threadbare but well kept by the mother, who was the housekeeper. The daughter, a girl of 18, was a shoe hand. The brother, a few years older, was a skilled mechanic. All the members of the family accepted the tappings on the wall and the movement of small objects as the work of a dead boy. It is his way of letting us know that he is still among us, the mother explained. At this point, some reader is certain to ask the question, why do spirits rock chairs and lift tables? The spiritualist says, because by such unaccountable movements of familiar objects, attention is drawn to them and wonder is awakened. And certainly the movement of a pair of scissors with no one touching them provokes thought and leads to experiment. At the invitation of the family, we took our seats at the plain dining table with our hands laid flat upon it. A small rocker which had been the little boy's favorite seat stood on the floor a little back of my chair. The medium, a large, slow-spoken, pleasant girl, sat beside me. After the room was darkened, the mother began to sing one of the hymns which Robbie particularly liked, and within a few minutes the table began to heave, and soon after this the little rocker which I could dimly see creaked and moved as if someone were veritably sitting upon it. Slowly, by slight impulses, it slid up to me and at last rested against my knee. After a pause as if to gather strength, it began to climb, and by painful effort, after several trials, succeeded in reaching and resting upon my elbow. It almost attained the top of the table, but fell as if exhausted. These motions were followed by rappings which answered questions, one rap meaning no, and three raps yes. The mother talked to the invisible as to her little son. The girl said, Robbie likes to play tricks on us, don't you, Robbie? And a fusillade of raps responded. As I sat facing the window, the shade of which was only partly drawn, I could see the heads of passing workmen, and in the silences between our songs I could hear the sounds of feet on the pavement. Here in vivid contrast were the prosaic facts of everyday life in the street and the room in which a mother was communicating with an invisible and tangible son. The members of this family were so serious of purpose and so happy in their faith that I had no desire to question it in their presence. There was nothing evidential in the sitting, nothing to make a report upon, but recalling my father's stories of my mother's similar mediumship, I felt in this circle something of the same religious awe with which my uncles and aunts had approached the sittings in my grandfather's pioneer cabin fifty years before. Soon after this trip to Lowell, one of my members, the principal of a high school in Jamaica Plain, related to me the story of an experiment which he had recently made, and his statement gave me a new angle on clairvoyance. He said, Professor Wilton, one of my friends, principal of a school in Forest Hills, had been testing with me the ability of a certain medium who claimed to read sealed letters, and we had both been deeply impressed by the man's candor as well as by his astounding success in reading our questions even when enclosed in sealed envelopes. Not entirely satisfied, however, we agreed to try again, using every precaution against opening and resealing the envelopes. That night I prepared another letter for this test, but on the following morning I was shocked to learn that Wilton had died in his bed of heart disease. His family asked me to come over at once, 
This I did, and as I entered the study, I noticed on his desk an envelope of the sort we had planned to prepare. And the thought came to me, here is a perfect test. No living person knows what is in this envelope. I put it in my pocket and a few days later took it to the medium, together with another sealed letter which I had myself prepared. The psychic read mine quickly and correctly, holding it to his brow with his eyes closed. I then gave him my friend's letter. After pressing it to his forehead a few moments, he said, I can't read this message. It is the writing of a dead man. If you will have it read by anyone, anywhere in the world, I will read it, but I can't do it now. It must be in the mind of some living person before I can lay hold upon it. Since then, I have tried it with other clairvoyants, and none of them can read it. This story, which I give from memory, provoked thought along new lines. To my friend, I said, your test seems to prove that the wall between the living brain and the dead mind is a very real barrier. My interest in clairvoyance and psychometry began that day, and although my committee work was mainly along physical lines, I found that metaphysical elements were present in every problem. Each medium presented several types of phenomena. The first case of independent slate writing which I examined emphasized this fact. The medium was the wife of a skilled workman whose home was in Roxbury. They were both young and unschooled in the laws of matter as well as of spirit communication and in all of the strange new power which they had developed. We want to understand it. We're scared by it. As a novelist, I was interested in these young people and quite willing to let them demonstrate their power in their own way. The medium, who was hardly more than a child, looked up at me as an official investigator, a person of wide experience in such matters, and I made no attempt to want to deceive her. After telling me how he had discerned his wife's mediumship, the husband bound a pair of hinged school slates together with a strong cord and handed them to me. You hold one end of them and Mary will hold the other, he said. Taking position in the center of the room under a gas chandelier in full burning, the girl and I stood facing each other with the husband a few feet away. There was no table between the medium and myself. All was in light. Candid, natural, but tense, the girl seemed to wait for a message. Her head turned a little as if listening. Suddenly, the slates began to twitch from side to side. My hands are large and strong, and I put forth my strength in an effort to stop this movement. Thereupon, the slates began to twist with an amazing force, and a grinding noise developed. The movement became so furious that I feared the slates might be broken, and yet the medium's small hands did not show strain. She was apparently awed and at the same time gratified. When I opened the slates, I found a dozen lines of writing as if done by several different hands, but the messages had no relationship to me. The young husband then said, we have had over 20 different kinds of writing. He showed me these scripts, but as I had not seen them done, I could not take them into account. For some reason which I do not now recall, I made no formal report of this sitting. The medium had every appearance of sincerity, but I could not accept her testimony, and the possibility of invisible writing weakened the test. At this time, many materializing sittings similar to those Howells had described in the undiscovered country were going on in the lodging house district of Boston, in the back parlors of stately mansions, homes which had long since fallen into the hands of indigent landladies. Sunday evenings offered scores of seances, several of which I shared. All were of the same general character. A dark cabinet or curtained alcove filled one corner of a room whose windows were always heavily curtained. The auditors were seated in a half circle facing the cabinet. The psychic, or her manager, usually made a short speech on the subject of spirit return. At the close of this, the lights were turned out and the audience sang a hymn. The first voice to be heard was often that of a red Indian who announced himself with a whoop. Me big chief, guide to white squaw. But I observed that for all their grunts and rumblings, these redskins had the vocal peculiarities of the medium and used a highly conventionalized dialect. 
During one of these performances, I sat very close to the cabinet and on its right so that when a spirit form, a tall woman clothed in white, came from the cabinet, I was able to see behind the gleaming veil the checked gown which I had observed she wore when she entered the cabinet. This was a typical case of materialization. No opportunity for testing the phenomenon was offered to me, although others were allowed to shake hands with the dimly visible figures. At another seance of this character, the medium, a very large woman who shook the floor as she walked, spoke with a strong German accent. And all the phantasms, even the American Indian guide, caused the floor to creak, and each one addressed me with an amusing mixture of broken English and illiterate German. In this sitting, as in many others, no one was able to call my name. Whatever their other powers might be, these spirits were not clairvoyant. Not one of them discovered that I was a research officer of the American Psychical Society. Nevertheless, in some of these sittings, the inexplicable happened. I was puzzled by certain mysterious lights which flashed upon the cabinet, lights which did not seem to illuminate the faces of the sitters, nor to define the walls of the room. These flashes of white light left on me the impression of a door opening into a glowing chamber. Each was rectangular in form, a block of intense radiance of the same power at the bottom as at the top, which lasted but an instant. In the effort to detect the fraudulent item in these performances, I read widely in the literature of exposure. But much of this confident news reporting testimony was offset by the testimony of Editor Flower and by certain phenomena which I had myself observed. Some of these phenomena are genuine, I said to Flower, but they are so mixed with trickery that I cannot report on them. In the intervals of my writing, I continued my study of telekinesis, movement of objects without contact, and the production of phantasms, for my lecture tours carried me into many towns and enabled me to test many mediums. Dolbear as a professor had few opportunities to cooperate. My will is good, but my work at a college keeps me tied down, he explained. During a brief stay in Chicago, I carried out several very puzzling experiments with slate writing which profoundly interested me. They were such simple, compact, and far-reaching tests. One extremely valuable seance took place in the humble West Side home of a Chicago psychic a middle-aged woman with a cheerful smile and uncultivated western accent. The room was well-lighted in the hour midday. As we held somewhat similar political views, we were almost instantly in rapport, as the medium called it. Her actions, like her words, were homely and candid. Admittedly farm-bred, she made no pretense toward necromancy in dress or speech. I just know I can do it. That's all I know, she declared. While distinctly on her guard, she made a favorable impression on me, and the phenomena, so far as I could discover, were without subterfuge. It is true that I used slates which she furnished me, but at no point was there opportunity for substitution, and before each test I examined them with care. Nevertheless, I secured on these slates answers to all the questions which I had written on slips of paper while she was out of the room. While waiting for the writing to appear, she told me that she and her sister could produce painting on a sheet of cardboard while it was held by a sitter above his head. I don't know how we do this. I only know that the paintings come just like I tell you. We believe the spirits do it. Spirits of artists. The messages which appeared on my slates were an answer to my questions, but were vague and of no value. All the mediums I studied at this time were careful to keep me at more than arm's length. And yet the more I saw of them, and the more I heard of their undiscovered country, the more readily I granted the claim that something worthy of careful study was at the bottom of their phenomena. I resolved to humor them, sympathize with them, and watch. At Flower's suggestion, I went to Onset Bay in July of that year, 1892. This was a seashore resort which, like Lilydale in New York, was almost entirely given over to spiritualists and spiritualistic programs. It was an amazing assembly. 
On doorposts of small cabins and pinned to the flaps of tents were signs which announced slate writer, materializing medium, clairvoyant, psychometrist, fortune teller, and healer. But to be quite fair, I found the campers a genial, kindly lot, homely and weather-beaten. Nearly all of those I met were familiar New England types. Even the magicians were of homespun character. I could not imagine any necromancy in the spaces of these small tents and flimsy cottages. It was all pleasantly humdrum. At the door of one of these tents, I paid my dollar and had my slates written upon. In another, I heard quote-unquote spirit voices, but I did not attend any of the developing circles. They were outside my committee work. I talked with several elderly folk who had come down from the farm to hear the voices of their beloved dead and found them so happy in their faith that I had not the heart to oppose it. They were all serenely confident that the dead were sharing with them the pleasure of this summer outing. The air is just full of loved ones, they exultantly assured me. They meet with us as we meet with them. While making no formal report, I discussed this colony with Flower, whose eyes shone with amusement at my description. Wouldn't you like to get their religion, he asked. Assuredly, but my faith must be built on the rock of scientific experiment. Is there any such rock, he demanded. We take the so-called facts of science on faith. What theory explains all the facts of larvae turning into butterflies? What is the cocoon but a dark cabinet? It's only a hypothesis, after all, something to work with. Until very recently, only two hypotheses were possible. One, that all the phenomena were fraudulent, or that they were the work of spirits. There is now a third hypothesis. Certain investigators now claim that they are caused by forces we do not understand. I'm not asking you to become a spiritualist. I'm only asking you and Dolbear to examine with open minds the cases we send to you. One day, as Dolbear and I were discussing our experiences, I said, Have you ever had anything inexplicable happen to you? Never but once, he replied with a twinkle in his keen blue eyes. One morning, as I awoke and lay dozing, gazing at the ceiling, I saw a cloud of vapor form above my head, and while I wondered and waited, an open hand came out of it and reached down toward me as if wishing to grasp one of mine. Thinking it an optical illusion, I reached up and grasped it. It was solid. With a yell, I leaped out of bed and watched it disappear. This is my one contact with a spook. If the senses of touch and sight are worth anything, I saw and clasped a living hand. But with all that, I won't swear that it was not an illusion. Chapter 2 Three Slate Writing Mediums Shortly after my acceptance of this commission, I went to Washington to do some literary work, and while there, I learned that the city had several psychic practitioners of wide renown, and I met several enthusiastic patrons of these magicians. One of these devotees who saw my visited was an old German physician who insisted on a minute examination of his records. His library drawers were filled with scores of slates, each of which bore a message from Napoleon, Washington, Lincoln, Shakespeare, or some other equally celebrated personality. I confess that it was a bit surprising to find Socrates and Julius Caesar writing messages in commonplace English for the benefit of an elderly citizen of Washington, but the good doctor had no doubts. I have received these messages under these conditions, he declared. The very mystery of their origin confirmed his belief in their authenticity, and he took vast pride in the advice of Lincoln and Napoleon. We spent several hours going over these communications, which were on a very high level indeed. There was something touching in the doctor's wish to have me share his convictions. At this point, I must say that the outstanding fact of all the spirit testimony which I had thus far collected was its uniformity of method and the small value of its results. 
From the banner of light, I gathered that seances in Paris, London, and Chicago all followed the same procedure and reported the same outcome. No matter in what tongue the spirits spoke, their voices rose from the same conditions. For the most part, they were produced in the dark and addressed themselves to an odd circle of credulous sitters, many of whom were not only elderly, but bereaved and longing for a message from those who had passed on into silence. There were a few exceptions, however. Some investigators reported phenomena obtained in the light and under careful control. Certain of the conditions, however, led me to distrust these reports. Other accounts seemed reasonable and logical. Manifestly, we cannot expect to find ghosts on the dusty highway, nor can we catch spirit messages in the turmoil of city streets I wrote to Flower. I am willing to grant that one must step aside into some quiet corner in order that the subjective side of life may manifest. But so much of all this testimony is dubious that I lose patience with it. I am amazed, however, at the widespread belief in spirit return. While in Washington, on another errand, I met a government official who had been a reader of the arena from the beginning and was a member of our psychical society. He was himself deeply interested in scientific research and had joined our membership with the special approval of our purpose. In our first interview, he said, I have in my household a medium of remarkable powers. She is my niece, a girl of about 16 years of age. I would like to have you see and test her phases. Having high regard for his character and his judgment, I went to his home and met the girl. I found her pleasingly normal in appearance. In her speech and manner, she was just an attractive schoolgirl, and yet she was able, so her uncle declared, to make a table float in the air and to produce mysterious lights and spectral hands. Without much confidence in the outcome, I followed the girl into the parlor and took a seat opposite her at a small round stand, whose top was about 20 inches in diameter. No one else was in the room, and a gas fixture was burning directly over our heads. Placing our hands on the tabletop, we waited, and almost immediately it began to move. After rocking about on its legs for a few minutes, it began to rise. Stand up, I commanded. The girl did as I requested, and with both of us standing and only the tips of our fingers touching its top, the table rose completely from the floor and hung about twenty inches above the carpet. Pressing down upon it, I felt it resist as if it were floating on some thick, resilient liquid. It oscillated under my hands as if the power were applied from below and at its exact center. Please step back from the table as far as you can, I then said. The girl did as I requested, and I could plainly see that both her feet were on the floor. The entire front of her dress was visible. Nothing of her person touched the table except the tips of her fingers. There was no doubt in my mind at the moment. The table was being lifted by an unknown force and was held suspended in the air for a minute, possibly longer. I had ample time for observation. We then placed a flat-stringed instrument on the table and turned out the light. The room was not wholly dark. I could dimly perceive the girl's hands. Under these conditions, the instrument was softly played while small twisting, pointing flames of brilliant color rose from the medium's shoulders and floated toward the ceiling. At all times, her arms were faintly visible. This performance had evidential value, for I believed the girl to be honest, a belief to which the levitation of the table gave support. Nevertheless, I did not include the playing of the instrument in my official report. The room was dark, and I had no control of the psychic's hands I wrote to Flower. The levitation of the table was in the full light. On the following day, very curious confirmation of the girl's claim to abnormal powers took place. Scheduled to address a woman's club, I was seated on the platform of a small hall when Miss Brown, my medium, came in and took a seat in the front row of chairs. Soon after, while listening to the secretary's announcements, I heard a soft tapping sound which came apparently from Miss Brown's chair. Upon meeting my glance, she flushed deeply and bowed her head, evidently greatly embarrassed by the comment of those seated near her. Some were irritated, others amused. At last the girl rose and went away. 
She told me afterwards that she often heard these sounds on her desk at school. I wish they wouldn't do it, she plaintively said. They embarrass me terribly. They tap on my bed at night, but I don't mind that if they would only let me alone at school. I don't like to be made conspicuous that way. I had no further sittings with her, and she passed out of my knowledge. One of the best-known Washington psychics at the time was a man whom I shall call Kelly, who had a performance which some observers considered a brazen piece of ledger domain while others called it inexplicable. I had several sittings with Kelly, and while I was warned against him as a trickster, I could not discover any precise deceit. His act was profitable. He owned a comfortable home and was well-regarded by his neighbors. He produced independent writings for those who wished them, but his especial performance was more dramatic. Placing three chairs in a row across one corner of his library, he asked two of his sitters to take seats beside him. In front of them and himself, he then drew a dark, thick curtain which concealed his body and the bodies of his experimenters up to their chins. Behind this curtain and close behind his chair, he placed a guitar and a bell. His left wrist was grasped by the sitter next to him and his right hand grasped that of the other sitter. Under these conditions, with both of his hands controlled as I recalled them, I saw, while sitting in the light, swift hands flickering above the curtains. I heard bells ring and saw the guitar rise in the air while being played upon as if by the use of two hands. I could not conceive how he could free both hands and play his instrument without detection. While I was the observer, a clumsy right hand came through the curtain and wrote on a pad which I held for it. The fingers of this hand were puffy and short, but mobile. A little later, the guitar climbed to the top of the curtain and peered over at me. It was played upon, so the sitters declared, at the precise moment that Kelly's hands were fully controlled. During two later seances, I sat behind the curtain while the guitar was played. I could account for only one hand. I regarded this at the time as an entertainment, and I am writing of it now largely from memory. My feeling then was one of amusement, but I am now able to record the fact that this man continued for half a lifetime to earn his living in this way. During 92 and 93, I was almost constantly on the road, speaking on literary subjects for clubs and schools, and in almost every city to which I was called, trumpet mediums, slate writers, and diviners offered their services. For the most part, I distrusted their explanations, but their phenomena were often baffling. Slate writing especially interested me. Having read many expositions of how this trick was done, I was alertly on my guard against substitutions and the use of invisible ink. That slates could be chemically prepared and invisible writing developed, I had no doubt. But Alfred Russell Wallace's statement that he had dictated what was to appear on the slates after the slates were in his hands profoundly influenced me. I resolved to apply this test. Giving little attention to inconclusive messages which came, I hoped each time for a supreme test of the method. One of the most convincing of my experiences came during a visit to Chicago in 1892. Old Man McVicker, the famous theatrical manager, was an open advocate of the spirit hypothesis, and one day, while he and I and James A. Hearn, the actor-dramatist, were lunching together, the subject of mediumship came up, and McVicker said, I know a West Side medium who is able to produce writing on a slate under the bottom of a goblet filled with water. You should see her. Why under a goblet of water, demanded Hearn. For the reason that most people go to a medium expecting to witness a miracle. We all want messages to come hard, that is to say, under conditions impossible to ordinary people. We argue that the dead being free from the limitations of earthly life should be able to manifest their presence in direct opposition to what we call natural law. Hence we insist on their writing on locked slates and reading sealed letters. The poor psychics are forced to grant these tests. So far as my experience goes, and it covers a good many years, I have found most of them honest. Go and see this woman, she's a wonder. With this recommendation in mind, I went at once to the address he had given. 
I found this wonder worker occupying a humble little apartment far out on the ugly west side. There was nothing occult in her home. She received me at the door and led me to a sunny, plainly furnished back parlor. Taking a seat at a small table covered with a strip of cloth, she asked me to sit opposite her. She was a plump, humorous Kansas woman of 45, very like my mother's neighbors in Dakota. I know you, she said. You're a writer for the arena. We both voted for General Weaver. I set this down in order that the reader may sense the commonplace surroundings of this Sybil and the friendly basis on which we operated. We were both without the slightest nervous tension. There was nothing oriental or fictitious about Mrs. Simpson. She was just a humorous, freckled, hard-working village housewife. After a short discussion of some of my articles, which she heartily approved, she filled a long stem goblet with water and placed it on a slate which I had previously examined to see that it was devoid of writing. Balancing the slate and the glass on the palm of her right hand, she slowly and carefully passed it under the table. She then said, put your hand under mine. I want you to help steady the slate. Why put the slate under the table, I asked. Because the forces work better out of sight. They don't like to write when anyone is looking at them. As we now sat, my right hand was under hers, which was spread beneath the slate, while her other hand was in full view. Furthermore, as she was sitting sidewise to the table, I could see both of her feet. The room had a southern exposure and was very light. Together we held the slate in such a wise that the goblet brimming with water just touched the underside of the table. As we waited, I asked questions. Did you devise this test? No, it was given to me by my guides. I like the precautions you have taken, but in addition I should like to dictate what is to be written. I'd like to do it now while the goblet is resting on the slate. If your guides will write one word at my dictation, it will end all talk of prepared slates and the like. They will do better than that, she briskly replied. They will take something out of our conversation as we go along. Will that answer your purpose? Perfectly. A moment later, I felt a slight movement in the slate and the faint sound of a scribbling pencil. They have written, the psychic said, and slowly withdrew the slate. As she brought it carefully to the top of the table, I saw writing under the foot of the goblet, and upon reading these words, I found that they had in very truth been taken from our talk. I recognized them as words I had uttered after the slate had been passed under the table. How they were written under that water-filled glass I could not imagine. Accusations claiming prepared or substituted slates have no weight in this case. That was a fine test, I said. Let's try again. Again we tried, and again the forces met the test successfully. I was not yet satisfied. Now let me dictate the exact words to be written after the slate and goblet are under the table and upheld by our united palms. I will ask them, she said, and sat for a few moments, her head bent as if listening to voices inaudible to me. At last, she said, they will try. The goblet of water was again set on the slate, and after it was under the table, I said, ask them to write the name William Dean Howells beneath the bottom of the glass. Almost instantly, I felt a distinct vibration in the slate. The power did not come through the psychic's hand, which remained motionless under mine. The force appeared independent of both of us. While the scratching of the pencil was going on, I could detect no slightest motion of the psychic's fingers, and my hand, which is large, covered hers completely. Her left hand was in full view on top of the table, and her feet were both plainly visible. Suddenly, the writing stopped, and with an embarrassed smile, the psychic said, they don't know how to spell the middle name. I spelled it for her, and a few moments thereafter, a tapping on the top of the table, not on the slate, announced the completion of the task. As she again drew the slate from under the table, and before she had touched the goblet with her other hand, I bent over to see what had happened. The water in the glass remained undiminished, and under the round foot of the goblet I read the name William Dean Howells, 
And what was most unaccountable of all was the fact that the power, after writing the middle word Dean, which came to the limit of the space covered by the goblet, had dropped down a line in order that the word Howl should remain under the glass. The powers had not only met my test, they had written the words I dictated entirely within the circle of the hollow base of the goblet. It is of no value to say that the slate was juggled. It was not. From the point of view of the spiritualist, this performance was on a low plane, but to me it was of high significance. It was in fact a more decisive test than that which Alfred Russell Wallace imposed. It met all objections. To say that the psychic wrote those words with her fingernail on the underside of the slate is absurd, for my spread hand covered hers. Furthermore, she could not turn the slate over without spilling the water in the goblet. That the power came from her and not from the spirit seemed probable, but I regarded it as supernormal. All the conditions were mine, devised to make trickery impossible. It had nothing to do necessarily with the return of the dead, but it was a facer. Whatever the character of the forces, I absolved the psychic from any deception. Soon after this wholly inexplicable experiment, I returned to Boston, and almost immediately thereafter, Flower asked me to go with his wife to test a medium who lived in Roxbury. On this occasion, I took my own slates, ordinary folding school slates, but whether they were used or not is of no value, for here again I dictated what was to be done after the slates were under my hands. It was about two o'clock, and the sitting took place in a sunlit room, with no one but Mrs. Beach, Mrs. Flower, and myself present. Placing my folded slates on the table, I put my right hand on one corner of them and asked Mrs. Flower to place hers on the corner nearest her. I then addressed the psychic. Alfred Russell Wallace, the greatest scientist in one of his tests, caused the word Constantinople to be written after the slates were under his hands. I am eager to duplicate his test. The psychic smiled and said, just as the Chicago psychic had done, I don't believe they know how to spell that word. Very well, I'll be content with anything. A straight line an inch long drawn on these slates while under our hands will be of the highest value. After listening for a moment to the invisible, she smilingly retorted, They say it is hard to draw a straight line. Very well, draw a crooked one, I replied. Draw a zigzag line like a stroke of lightning. Or have them draw a circle, draw it in yellow. I wish to emphasize these several changes in my concept in order to show that no previous arrangement took place. Whatever the results, they cannot be arranged, I said to Mrs. Flower. The psychic said no more. She fell silent and appeared to concentrate. Meanwhile, Mrs. Flower and I remained with our hands on the folded slates. Mine were not lifted for a single instant. That, I declare. The psychic did not touch the slates. She remained seated on the opposite side of the table and a few feet away from it. Her hands were folded in her lap. She seemed relaxed, confident, thoughtful. We all waited patiently. The room almost as homely as the Chicago woman's parlor was without the slightest suggestion of conjuring, but no machinery, concealed or otherwise, could affect this test, for I had requested a definite result to be wrought while the slates were under our hands. At last we heard a tapping, and the psychic brightened as if in pleasurable relief. It is done, she exclaimed, with a note of exultation in her voice. I opened the slates myself, and there, drawn in yellow crayon, was a small circle with a zigzag line like a flash of lightning crossing it exactly as I dictated it and under Mrs. Flower's hand in the other corner of the slate was a painting of a gaily-colored bunch of pansies, a tribute to her name. Quietly, modestly, the medium had met my test. Several sentences in different script were on the slates, but they were of the usual sort, vague greetings which meant little. They were the kind of messages which could have been written beforehand. But that circle had been drawn after my hands were on the slates and strictly in accordance with my dictation. It was a definite, complete, and triumphant victory for the invisibles. That I was profoundly affected by this test I am willing to admit, but that it raised me in belief in a spirit agency I must deny.
It was in keeping with all that I had read of the fourth dimension, as tremendous in its implications as the spirit hypothesis. It is all on record, for I went at once to the hall where the psychic society was in session, and there made a detailed report of it, a report which was afterward printed in the journal. In conclusion, I wrote, quote, This confirms some Japanese experiments, as well as those of Alfred Russell Wallace, and it has created in my mind a conviction that the work of other mediums which I once believed to be fraudulent may have been equally genuine, end quote. This experience must not be passed over as a slight one, for it has in it the basic mystery of matter and its relation to mind. Nothing is so deceptive as our senses, says Richet, but they are all we have. The more I pondered this test, the deeper its implications went. It was performed in harmony with my will. It was not planned by the psychic. She said she had never before met exactly this test, and she rejoiced in the outcome, just as the Chicago woman had done. She seemed not related to the phenomena in any direct way. She must have been the agent, however, for neither Mrs. Flower nor I demonstrated power in that direction. So far as I knew, I might assist in such a test, but I could initiate nothing. At the same meeting, Rabbi Schindler, himself a doubter, related his experience. He reported that he'd obtained on a slate hung on a chandelier beyond the psychic's reach an answer in German to a question in Hebrew. The answer was in German with Hebrew characters, he added. His report in mind may be found in the Psychical Review of 1892. The most disturbing fact about these performances was their stark simplicity. These women had no confederates, no mirrors, no trapdoors, and no specially constructed tables. They operated amid prosaic surroundings. They were not shrewd people. They were comparatively simple, unlettered folk, earning a few dollars by sitting in their parlors and working miracles apparently without effort on their part. They were a confiding lot. Once they came to believe in my sincerity of intent, they lent themselves to my experiment readily, and my attitude toward those I had doubted changed. I began to think along new lines, lines which Dolbear in his new book had projected. All matter is motion. He was himself a prophet. He anticipated the wireless telephone and the radio. He listened to my reports respectfully, but made no comment other than to say, I hope some such experiences may come my way. Chapter 3. Trumpet Voices Notwithstanding my deepening interest in psychic matters, I kept my research as subordinate to my work as a novelist and lecturer. My talks on local color and fiction and other literary and aesthetic subjects were an occasional demand, and as the arena which made frequent mention of the activities of the American Psychical Society referred to me as one of its officers, I began to encounter, at the close of my addresses, auditors who were much more interested in me as an investigator than as a man of letters. In almost every town I visited, mediums introduced themselves to me and offered their services, often without pay, for they had somehow gained the impression that I would be fair in my judgments of them. In this, they were right, for it was my policy to study, not to expose them. Late in December of 1892, I found myself in Santa Barbara filling a lecture date which my father's brother, Addison Garland, a resident in the city, had arranged. With little interest in matters occult, he was a man of thought and quite ready to sponsor one of my literary addresses. In the early afternoon preceding my lecture, a young woman called upon me at my uncle's house and at once said, I am what they call a trumpet medium. I live in a village about 90 miles away over the range. I am a reader of the arena and I know of your work for the American Psychical Society. I have come down to have you test my powers. My guides told me to come. They assured me that you will make the best use of my mediumship. This young psychic interested me. Her name was not Smiley, but I shall call her that. She was a pale, dark-eyed little woman of about my own age, refined in manner and plainly of higher type than any of the mediums I had hitherto met. Could you give me a test sitting here tonight after my lecture, I asked. 
I'm going to Los Angeles tomorrow to begin a series of literary addresses, and a late sitting here is my only chance to test your powers. She consented to do this, and at the close of my lecture came to my uncle's house, bringing her trumpet, a long tin cone of simplest construction. Unfortunately, a tremendous tropical rain was lashing against the windows and roaring through the trees, and for that reason, or some other, the sitting was a failure. No voice came from the trumpet, and nothing stirred in the room but ourselves. Mrs. Smiley was disappointed, and so was my uncle. I laid our failure to the influence of the storm, but she went away sadly dejected. I have come so far and accomplished nothing, she said disconsolately. On the following morning, as I entered the car for Los Angeles, I was greatly surprised to find the little medium there. She explained her change of plan. Last night after I went to my hotel, my guides came to me and told me to go with you to Los Angeles. They said that you would arrange some sittings there. They promise important results from such sittings. It is only fair to say, Mrs. Smiley, that my committee has no funds as yet with which to pay you for your services or your expenses, and I cannot afford personally to pay your usual fees. I have no usual fees, she answered. I'm not a professional medium in that sense. I'm only an instrument in the hands of my guides. Tell me about yourself. How did you discover these powers? And how long have you acted as an instrument? I've been devoted to this work ever since a child. My father was a convinced spiritualist, and when I was about nine years old, strange things began to happen in our house. My parents didn't know what to make of it. They thought demons had taken possession of our home. Dishes were broken, the chairs overturned, everything movable shifted about. It was all like the work of a poltergeist, as some writers call it now. Everywhere I went, raps followed me, and small objects moved when I passed near them. My schoolmates refused to sit beside me. The mysterious taps on the books and on benches terrified them and greatly embarrassed me. Finally, my father decided that I was the cause of all this rumpus and made me sit regularly for development. I didn't like to do this, but he insisted. And when he began to get messages from the other side, all my relatives said to me, it is your duty. They used to tie me and confine me in every way, experimenting with me for hours at a time. It was all very tiresome to me, but I couldn't help myself. I was only a child of 10 or 12 and I was overborn. I have been devoted to the work ever since. After my father died, my gift was of great comfort to me as well as to my mother, for I got messages from him. I brought consolation to all my friends, many of whom were able to hear the voices of their relatives who had passed on. After my little daughter went away, I was glad of my gift. She comes to me almost every night. I can hear her voice, and she takes care of me when I'm in trance. There was no doubting the sincerity of the little woman's faith. Her face and voice were honest. I asked, does your daughter speak to you directly? Yes, sometimes she speaks from the air, but generally her voice comes through the trumpet when I sit in the dark. My guides also use the trumpet. What do you mean by voices? Do they sound like voices of people you knew? Yes, they are just as real as any voices. You believe that they are voices of the dead? She spoke firmly. I know they are. If I didn't believe that, I would be desolate. For over 30 years, these voices have been a part of my daily life. They mean more to me than I can tell. Perceiving in her a clear-sighted and candid spiritualistic practitioner, I spent all the hours of this ride to Los Angeles in an attempt to get at the heart of her mystery. What is your condition when these voices are speaking? Are you clearly awake? Not always. Sometimes I hear what is said, at other times I know nothing of the messages. Often I am in a deep trance. Are you conscious of leaving your body when objects are being moved about the room? Yes, I often have the feeling of floating about in the air. It sometimes seems as if I were suspended a few feet above and a little to one side of my material body, to which I am always attached by a shining thread. 
I often see my body lying there and I know what goes on around me, but it all appears dim like things in a dream. It's hard to explain what I mean, but I seem to be in two places at once. Do you ever perceive a physical connection between yourself and your sitters? Do they help in the production of phenomena? She hesitated a moment before replying. Yes, I sometimes see little shining threads going about from me and from each one of the persons in the circle. These threads meet in the center and twine themselves about the trumpet or pencil. I know that I draw power from my sitters. Some aid more than others. You say you sometimes go away into the spirit world. Tell me of that. Her face and voice became wistful as she replied, Sometimes I go to a far-off bright region. Often I have no wish to come back, but there is always a little white ribbon which unites my wandering spirit with my body and holds me fast. Once when I resolved not to return, that band of light began to tug at me, and although the thought of leaving my daughter and my parents who were with me in that bright place almost broke my heart, I yielded and came back to life on earth. It was cheerful and lovely in the spirit land, and I hated to come back to a life of struggle on the cold and cruel earth plane. Can't you describe the spirit world a little more definitely? No, it is so different from this plane that I have no words in which to describe it. All I can say is that it is very bright and warm and beautiful. Something in her face and voice quite won my goodwill. Mrs. Smiley, you are the first psychic I have known with whom I can discuss these matters freely. I am an official investigator. To me there is no value in merely sitting in the dark listening to an uncontrolled medium operating from a cabinet. I want to test what happens. You believe in your powers, I can feel that. Do you believe in them strongly enough to permit me to put you under control during a seance? With candid, serene glance, she replied, I will submit to any test you wish to make. You may handcuff me or put me in a cage if you wish. Bravo, you have the blood of the martyrs in you. I wish I could ask you to come to Boston and sit for the directors of the Psychic Society, but I can't take the responsibility. Thus far, we have met no one of your quality. I will try to arrange a sitting in Los Angeles before I go east but I can't promise it, for I am giving several lectures there and have no evenings free. That night, as I rose to give the first of my addresses, I saw little Miss Smiley sitting demurely in one of the rear seats, a most inconspicuous figure with nothing in her face or dress to indicate in the slightest degree her possession of occult powers. My talk was under the auspices of the public library, and Miss Tessie Calso, the director of the library, presented me to my audience. At the close of my lecture, she took me down upon the floor of the hall and there introduced me to a group of her friends. Seeing Mrs. Smiley standing near, timidly waiting for a word with me, I called Miss Calso's attention to her. There is the little medium I told you about. She seems an honest one, and I am going to test her powers while I'm here. You must let me share in your tests, Miss Calso exclaimed. Approaching Mrs. Smiley, I said, come and meet some of my friends. Miss Calso was pleased by the quiet dignity of the psychic and especially by her gentle and candid utterance, and turning to me, she said, let's go to my apartment and have a sitting tonight. It's only nine o'clock. I am willing if Mrs. Smiley is, I replied, amused by her outspoken enthusiasm. Mrs. Smiley was also amused by this impulsive demand. I am perfectly willing to do so, but I must go and get my trumpet, she explained. I am setting down these preliminary details in order that the reader may sense the casual way in which the whole affair was arranged, and also to explain the high character of the group which assembled a half hour later in Miss Calso's library and sitting room. No preparation was possible, no wires could have been laid. Furthermore, Miss Calso, a vigorous young woman with no experience in psychic phenomena, was frankly skeptical. And so far as I know, the men and women who met with us that night were equally out of touch with the spiritualistic world. The men were practical businessmen. One of them was the editor of the leading paper in the city. Several of the women were social leaders, and all were vouched for by Miss Calso. They are my friends, she said. 
After seating the guests about a long table in Miss Kalso's library, I put Mrs. Smiley in an armchair at the head of the table. I then tied her wrists to the arms of the chair with silk twist knotted so tightly that she could not bring her hands together or lift them in the air. I explained as I did so that I used silk thread for the reason that it was impossible to untie such a knot. If I were called upon to tie a conjurer, I should not use a rope or his kind of cord. I would use a silk thread. After looping the psychic's ankles with thread, I tied the ends to the back of her chair while the sitters made humorous remarks on my severity. Mrs. Smiley defended me. I want to be confined. The room contained the usual furnishings of a young woman's sitting room, books, banjos, and the like. Directly behind the psychic and within reach of my hand stood an upright piano with its lid closed but not locked. The company, composed of three men and four women, were seated like guests about a dinner table, a heavy oak piece. On the end near me I placed the trumpet, a tin cone about two feet long, together with some paper and pencils. The horn stood on its larger end about three feet from the medium who was on my left. It was about ten o'clock when we took our seats and Miss Calso turned out the lights. Miss Otis, who sat at the psychic's left, rested a hand on the psychic's wrist, whilst I was in touch with her right hand. But I will not say that I was touching her at all times. I trusted to the silk twist. For over an hour we sat in the darkness while I told stories of my previous experiments in order to pass the time. Nothing happened, nothing moved for nearly two hours, and I was just at the point of giving up the trial when a faint sound came from the piano as if the strings were being timidly plucked. The sound came from the inside, from the strings, not from the action of the keys. This interior twanging kept time while we sang Annie Laurie and other familiar melodies. I do not know what the other sitters thought, but I was astounded. We then removed our hands from the table but kept them clasped, making a circle broken only at the psychic's end of the table. Lifting my hand from the psychic's wrist, I told Miss Otis to do the same. I am willing to trust our faithful silk twist, I said. As we sat thus, a drumming sound came from the table and later upon the trumpet. To show that this sound was governed by intelligence, I whistled a tune to which the invisible hand kept perfect time. This sound changed to a sharp ticking. It sounds as if made by fingernails, I remarked. Almost instantly, the trumpet was smitten as if with a palm. The invisible agent wished, apparently, to prove that he had a complete hand. While we waited, commenting on these inexplicable happenings, the trumpet was heard to rock on its base. Soon it rose in the air, and a few moments later dropped to the floor. From this position it rose and took its place upon the table as before. This action was entirely out of reach of the psychic, I said to the other sitters. This movement of the cone was followed by the sound of writing apparently on the pad in the center of the table. Whoever is doing that writing, speak up, I called out. It was not Mrs. Smiley. I am controlling her hand. When the trumpet rose again, I distinctly heard a whisper which seemed to come from its larger end. The lady opposite me said, I hear a whisper. It says, I am with you. Another clear whisper followed. I came with Mama were the words. A name was then whispered to Mrs. Spencer who recognized it as that of a relative. While this was going on, I put my ear as close to the psychic's lips as I could, listening intently. I heard no sound indicating movement on her part. Apparently she was in a deep, motionless trance. The whispering was now directed toward the sitters at the far end of the table and was not audible to me. So far as I could detect, the words did not originate at my end of the table. They were plainly heard by those seated at the other end of the table. Several direct communications were thus delivered, and the names of the invisible speakers given. At last, the mouth of the trumpet was apparently directed toward me, and a peculiar, hollow, breathy, inarticulate whisper came from it. Attempts were made to utter a name, but I could not distinguish it. Won't you write it for me? I asked. 
I will try, replied the invisible from the cone. A little later, I heard quite clearly a man's voice from the cone. I have written, but the writing is very miserable. Various raps, rustling, and drummings followed. I was tapped once upon the knee. I commanded the cone to touch me upon the right shoulder. This was done. I was touched very softly on my right cheek by the small end of the trumpet. This is highly evidential, for not only was this the cheek farther from the psychic, but the trumpet at my request had been reversed. The large end was over the table and several feet from the psychic's hands. The gentle precision of its touch was amazing. The cone then touched me on my right breast, partly under my arm, a spot impossible for the psychic's hand to reach even had it been free. At my request, the trumpet was then raised high in the air and drummed upon while in that position, three feet above and away from the psychic, a performance requiring two hands. I asked the sitters to observe that to do this, the psychic would need to occupy a standing position and have the use of both her hands. Immediately thereafter, the pencil and paper were lifted and thrown upon the floor, and the table strongly pushed farther away from the psychic. Seizing the opportunity for a still stronger test, I then said, put the pencils and paper back on the table. This was done instantly, an amazing phenomenon. It was simply impossible for Mrs. Smiley to stoop and find these objects in the dark. If deception is charged, it must be against one of the sitters, not against the psychic. This test closed the sitting. On relighting the room, we found the psychic exactly as I had fastened her. Indeed, the silk was so deeply sunk into her wrists, which were badly swollen, that I was obliged to insert the points of the scissors with care. I called attention to this fact. She could not have lifted her wrists an inch from the chair arm, I declared. The persons present were all well known to Miss Calzo and as they had all sat with clasped hands while the final tests were made, I was disposed to absolve them of any complicity. Aside from one or two who were greatly excited by the wonder of the experience, they were all alert and decidedly doubtful. Much laughter and joking characterized the evening. Some of them, however, confessed to a complete change of attitude. Notwithstanding the bonds of the psychic, one or two thought she might have moved her chair forward and obtained control of the trumpet, but all admitted the insoluble mystery of the sounds coming from inside of the closed piano. In discussing this astounding seance with the editor, I recalled the fact that aside from the darkness, the conditions were our own. Our control of the psychic I regard as complete. We must therefore not only inquire how the cone was moved, but how the voices were produced. If one of our sitters moved the cone, he must be a ventriloquist as well as a mind reader, for the voices of the trumpet gave recognized names and messages. The name of my sister was whispered. Furthermore, for one of us to pick up that pad and those pencils from the floor without hesitation would necessitate the breaking of our chain of hands and the use of abnormal vision. As for myself, I was not only puzzled, I was shaken. It was the most convincing test I'd ever made. I spent many hours analyzing it. Reporting to Flower, I wrote, quote, There can be no question of prearranged machinery. The sitting was unpremeditated and held in a public library which Mrs. Smiley had never entered. The circle was of the highest character. I confess that it has made a radical change in my attitude toward the phenomenon on which spiritualists base their faith. If this happened, anything can happen. We're to have another sitting tomorrow night." End quote. Our second sitting was in the same place, and the group was substantially the same as before. As in the first sitting, I again tied the psychic to the arms of her chair, with even greater care. And as a further precaution, I passed a tape line around her knees so that she could not slide down and touch the floor. I did this to meet the criticism of one of the men. Mrs. Smiley did not object to the extra bond. On the contrary, she again said, you may handcuff me if you wish. 
Nevertheless, despite these added precautions, the trumpet was again active, and the voices which came from it were much clearer than before. The chief speaker, whose name was Mitchell, addressed himself directly to me and had much to say concerning the work of our society. He spoke clearly, fluently, and forcibly with grave precision, like an elderly, intelligent, but rather pedantic college professor. His words related wholly to methods of communication and the health of the psychic. The physical disturbances, however, were rather less than before, and notwithstanding Mitchell's voice, the entire sitting was less exciting to the sitters, although they admitted that what did happen was of higher value by reason of my added control. Some of the women professed belief in the personal messages which they had received, and the words of Mitchell were clearly heard by all. His utterance was at times almost pure tone. Who is Mitchell? I demanded of the psychic. She replied, he was a friend of my father and a brother of Owen Mitchell, the astronomer. He has been one of my chief guides for many years. He is greatly interested in your society and tells me to cooperate with you in every way possible. There was something so candid, so patient, so compliant about the little woman that the entire company was won to a genuine liking and respect for her. All agreed to meet again at my call. On the following day, I went with Mrs. Smiley to have a daylight sitting with another sensitive who had expressed a desire to meet me. Her act was the one called impersonation, and I found it rather moving. After sitting for a few moments in the ordinary light of her little parlor, the psychic rose and with her hand on her thigh limped painfully about the room as if seeking a book or paper, talking meanwhile on some literary topic. No name was given, but I at once recognized her action as a very clever reproduction of the walk and gestures of Walt Whitman. This had no great evidential value, for she may have read the account of my visit to him. I could not think she had read this, but it was possible that she had. On the same day, I went to the home of a woman in Pasadena to see some paintings done while in trance by her Swedish housemaid. They were amazingly intricate drawings in black and white, each representing some philosophical or ethical subject, all circular in form and divided into light and dark sections. One which I vividly recall was filled with hundreds of faces and most amazing of all, these faces were so drawn that the lines on the light form served as outlines of the dark forms. It was as if the artist had produced each picture according to a fixed pattern to show that the impossible could be wrought by spirit aid. They were done, I was told, almost instantly. I did not see the girl, and I give her mistress's statement as she made it to me, merely as another of the incredible forms which mediumship is able to assume. The third sitting with Mrs. Smiley took place as before in Miss Kelso's library and began at 8 o'clock on the last day of December 1892, with substantially the same group of interested sitters. Enlarging the circle, I removed the table entirely out of reach of the psychic. In the presence of the sitters and under the supervision of the men, I once more lashed the psychic to her chair with great care, and with the aid of the women I passed a loop of tape around each of her ankles and nailed the ends of this tape to the floor behind her. I then drew chalk marks around the feet of her chair without her knowledge so that the slightest change in position could be measured. I wish to avoid all criticism of our method of control, I explained. I have made it impossible for Mrs. Smiley to move a single inch. I then placed pencils and paper and the trumpet on the table as before. After the lights were turned out, we sat for nearly four hours, part of the time singing, part of the time in unconstrained conversation. Mrs. Smiley was pathetically concerned by this failure of the phenomenon, and I, feeling sorry for her, was about to break the bonds when a faint tapping began, apparently on the top of the piano which stood as before at the back of the psychic and within easy reach of my hand. In answer to my query, are we sitting right? The invisible hand tapped once, an emphatic no, and at command of this invisible I changed places with Mrs. Spaulding, 
taking a seat on the psychic's left and a little back of her so that with my right hand I could easily reach the piano. This is one of those small changes which appear to be important to the invisibles, or to the psychic, for immediately thereafter a soft drumming came on the top of the piano. The drumming was about two feet back of the psychic and a little higher than her head. I cannot see how she is able to produce this with her bound hands, I remarked. At my command, these invisible fingers drummed in time to my whistling. Suddenly, this drumming ceased and the strings of the piano twanged as if to invite a test. The cover of the instrument was down and reaching back, I laid my hand on it and called out, Ladies and gentlemen, the cover of the piano is closed and my right hand is upon it. The psychic has no physical connection with it. It is a clear case of telekinesis. In order to show that this sound could not have been caused by the jar of passing streetcars, I then said to the invisible one, keep time to my whistling. This he did. I whistled Yankee Doodle and the twanging kept perfect time to every note. I then said strike softly and this it did. Sound on the treble I commanded and this was done. Now sound the bass strings I said and my command was obeyed. Calling the attention of the circle to the fact that the sound did not come from the keys but from a twanging of the strings I said. If the piano cover were open, which it is not, those sounds could only come from a hand picking at the strings. It is of no value to say that the piano was wired, for we had this effect at our first sitting which was arranged at the close of my lecture. Furthermore, I dictated what was done. Besides, you all know that Miss Calso and I examined the piano. It will not do to say that a cat or mouse is on the strings, for they would hardly keep time to my whistling Yankee Doodle. At this point, the force left the piano and fell upon the table. Mitchell, move the table still farther out of the reach of the psychic, I commanded. This the force did while we all sat clear of it. And while in this removed position, a bell in the center of the table was rung at a moment when all hands were clasped. Drumming on the cone followed. It was possible to recognize the tunes intended. Yankee Doodle and other ballads were characterized. This led me to say to the invisible performer, you must have enjoyed topical songs while here on earth. Instantly from the trumpet came a clear, strong whisper, I do now. From this time forward, whispering voices were heard coming from the trumpet as it floated about the circle. Two of the voices were so strong in tone that I could distinguish them as individual utterances. One of the speakers was a brisk, jovial, not too intellectual young man who gave his name as Wilbur. The other was the very precise, rather ponderous and oratorical Dr. Mitchell, who had spoken to me on the previous night. His speech was cultivated but old-fashioned. The third voice, sweetly clear, was apparently that of a little girl who said her name was Maudie. Just at this moment, the clamor of bells and horns announced midnight, and Maudie asked, What is all the noise in the street? It is the coming of the new year, I replied. Oh yes, she exclaimed, I remember. This was curious but not evidential for this voice seemed to come from the psychic and she may have momentarily forgotten that it was New Year's Eve. Sometimes Maudie used the trumpet but at other times she seemed to speak from the lips of her mother. Maudie is my little daughter, Mrs. Smiley had told us. She looks after me and helps me in every way possible. In an interval between the speaking from the trumpet I asked that the small end be placed against the temple on the side away from the psychic. This was done. At my request, the sitter on my left, entirely out of reach of the psychic, was touched gently with equal precision. I asked for these demonstrations as added proof of her telekinetic powers. Just before the little girl began to speak through the cone, Mrs. Smiley, who up to this time had been awake and perfectly normal, began to breathe heavily, and a few moments later became deathly still. She failed to reply to my question, and so far as I could test it by putting my ear to her lips, her breathing stopped. 
The voice of the little spirit, Maudie, was a curiously sweet silvery replica of Mrs. Smiley's voice, and she had the same manner of speech. And yet while not a sound came from the psychic's lips, Maudie spoke. The voice appeared to be entirely dissociated from the psychic's organ of speech. The childish voice said goodbye, and after turning on a dim light, we all sat for a few minutes waiting for the sleeper to awake. At last she began to breathe again and in a faint voice asked for water. I did not cut her bonds till the full light was turned on, and I was conscience-stricken as I watched her helplessly drinking from a glass held to her lips by Miss Calso. I called the attention of the group to the fact that the chair had not been moved a hair's breadth, and that every fastening was unchanged. They are precisely as I tied them. The threads are not broken but deeply embedded in the skin of the psychic's swollen wrists. It was necessary to chafe her hands and arms to restore the circulation and obliterate the creases which the threads had made in her flesh. She seemed weak and a little dizzy but soon recovered her ability to walk. Under the conviction of the moment, I said to some of the sitters, Mrs. Smiley did not lift her hands one half inch from her chair. She was at all times out of normal reach of the table, the cone, and the piano. She could not reach the lid of the piano, far less pluck its strings, for it was closed and my hand was on the cover. In fact, no one in this room could have touched those strings. If we had obtained no other phenomenon, the twanging of those strings at my dictation remains of greatest value. Some of us might have uttered the whispers, but no one could twang those strings. To suppose that some one of us was the trickster involves the collusion of two others, those who held his hands. No one could enter the room, for the slightest crack would let in the light from the hall. Whatever happened here tonight cannot be referred to any fraudulent action of the psychic. The more I reflected upon these sittings, the more amazing they became. Here was a psychic of pleasing character, intelligent, candid, self-sacrificing, just the person for the American Psychical Society to see. All the other mediums I'd met up to this time had been suspicious, elusive, on guard, refusing to be put under test conditions, whereas Mrs. Smiley, convinced of the spirit agency of all phenomena which took place in her presence, was not only willing but eager to put herself in my control for any number of experiments and without pay. She frankly said to me, I want to convert you. To this I replied, I must be honest with you. I do not believe in your guides, but I believe in you. I am quite certain that you are not consciously fraudulent, but these phenomena may come from your subconscious self, from me, or from all the sitters acting together. She was visibly saddened by this candid statement, but it remained unshaken. My guides will prove themselves to you yet. I would go to Boston if I thought I could bring that about. If there is a possibility of your coming east, I hasten to say, don't fail to let me know. A series of sittings with you on the part of our directors would have enormous value to our society. At this point, I should like to take the reader back over the course of these three sittings and call attention to our lack of tension, of nervous exultation, and to emphasize the naturalness of every phenomenon. The playing of the closed piano did not seem the revolutionizing thing that it really was. It was done so quietly, so humorously. The performer not only knew the tune Yankee Doodle, but rejoiced in it. He was obliging. He did exactly what I asked for instantly and cheerfully. He was no angel come from heaven or hell to do my bidding. He was one of the circle. All the other sounds and movements were equally commonplace, in a sense. I may say further that what was true of this sitting was equally true of others. I was not out to expose mediums, but to study them. I was not creating in my own mind or in the mind of others clouds of necromancy. I did not regard Mrs. Smiley as a marvel of fraudulent skill on whom I was to expend my supernal craft as a detective. I considered her for what she was, a commonplace little woman who had a peculiar endowment. 
What this endowment was I could not define and for the moment made no attempt to explain. I merely wish my readers to clear their minds of any emotionalism and all thought of elaborate machinery of magic. What happened seemed as normal and as mysterious as popping corn. At this time, 1892, I had no knowledge of any other instance of a closed piano being played by invisible fingers plucking the strings, but later I came upon precisely this phenomenon in Alfred Russell Wallace's book. He gave a page to a description of it. He did not remark upon the twanging of the strings, but to me an added absurdity lay in the fact that the invisible fingers found it easier to grasp the strings than to strike the keys. There was no explanation of this performance. As I dictated the action of the force at work, no question of a rat or cat on wires can arise. Here again the motive, so far as a motive is brought into it, was to astonish us, to puzzle us. It had no relationship to spiritual consolation or instruction. It was the action of a puckish intelligence, a poltergeist as the Germans call it. You've been listening to Classic Paranormal's reading of 40 years of psychic research by Hamlin Garland. This was merely the first installment. Be sure to click into the succeeding episodes until the book is complete. Until then, followers of the freaky, aficionados of the afterworldly, connoisseurs of the creepy, stay spooky. Stay spooky.